Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the power of a moment. A moment like June 2nd, 1910. When the shadow of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between seven and eight o'clock, and then I was in time again, hearing the watch. It was grandfather's, and when father gave it to me, he said, Quentin, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. It's rather excruciatingly apt that you will use it to gain the reducto absurdum of all human experience, which can fit your individual needs no better than it fitted his or his father's. I give it to you, not that you may remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment and not spend all your breath trying to conquer it. Because no battle is ever won, he said. They are not even fought. The field only reveals to man his own folly and despair. And victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. It was propped against the collar box, and I lay listening to it. Hearing it, that is. I don't suppose anybody ever deliberately listens to a watch or a clock. You don't have to. You can be oblivious to the sound for a long while. Then, in a second of ticking, it can create in the mind unbroken the long, diminishing parade of time you didn't hear. Like Father said, down the long and lonely light rays, you might see Jesus walking, like, and the good St. Francis that said, Little Sister Death, that never had a sister. Through the wall I heard Shreve's bed springs, and then his slippers on the floor hishing. I got up and went to the dresser and slid my hand along it and touched the watch and turned it face down and went back to bed. But the shadow of the sash was still there, and I had learned to tell almost to the minute, so I'd have to turn my back to it, feeling the eyes animals used to have in the back of their heads when it was on top, itching. It's always the idle habits you acquire which you will regret. Father said that. That Christ was not crucified. He was worn away by a minute clicking of little wheels that had no sister. And so as soon as I knew I couldn't see it, I began to wonder what time it was. Father said that constant speculation regarding the position of mechanical hands on an arbitrary dial, which is a symptom of mind function. Excrement, Father said, like sweating. And I say, all right. Wonder, go on and wonder. If it had been cloudy, I could have looked at the window, thinking what he said about idle habits, thinking it would be nice for them down at New London if the weather held up like this. Why shouldn't it? The month of brides, and the voice that breathed, she ran right out of the mirror, out of the banked scent. Roses, roses. Mr. and Mrs. Jason Richmond Compson announced the marriage of roses. Not virgins like dogwood, milkweed. I said, I have committed incest, father, I said. Roses, cunning and serene. If you attend Harvard one year but don't see the boat race, there should be a refund. Let Jason have it. Give Jason a year at Harvard. Shreve stood in the door, putting his collar on, his glasses glinting rosily, as though he had washed them with his face. You taking a cut this morning? Is it that late? He looked at his watch. Bell in two minutes. 
didn't know it was that late. He was still looking at the watch, his mouth shaping. I'll have to hustle. I can't stand another cut. The dean told me last week. He put the watch back into his pocket. Then I quit talking. You better slip your pants on and run, he said. He went out. I got up and moved about, listening to him through the wall. He entered the sitting room toward the door. Aren't you ready yet? Not yet. Run along. I'll make it. He went out. The door closed. His feet went down the corridor. Then I could hear the watch again. I quit moving around and went to the window and drew the curtains aside and watched them running for chapel. The same ones fighting, the same heaving coat sleeves, the same books and flapping collars flushing past like debris on a flood. And Spode, calling Shreve my husband. Ah, let him alone, Shreve said. If he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts, whose business? In the South, you were ashamed of being a virgin. Boys, men, they lie about it. Because it means less to women, Father said. He said it was men invented virginity, not women. Father said it's like death, only a state in which the others are left. And I said, but to believe it doesn't matter. And he said, that's what's so sad about anything, not only virginity. And I said, why couldn't it have been me and not her who was unvirgin? And he said, well, that's why that's sad, too. Nothing is even worth the changing of it. And Shreve said, if he's got better sense than the chase after the little dirty sluts. And I said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? Did you? Spode was in the middle of them, like a terrapin in a street full of scuttering dead leaves, his collar about his ears, moving at his customary unhurried walk. He was from South Carolina, a senior. It was his club's boast that he had never run for chapel and had never got there on time, and had never been absent in four years, and had never made either chapel or first lecture with a shirt on his back and socks on his feet. About ten o'clock, he'd come in Thompson's, get two cups of coffee, sit down, take his socks out of his pocket, and remove his shoes and put them on while his coffee cooled. About noon, you'd see him with a shirt and collar on like anybody else. The others passed him running, but he never increased his pace at all. After a while, the quad was empty. A sparrow slanted across the sunlight onto the window ledge and cocked his head at me. His eye was round and bright. First he'd watch me with one eye, then flick, and it would be the other one, his throat pumping faster than any pulse. The hour began to strike. The sparrow quit swapping eyes and watched me steadily with the same one until the chimes ceased, as if he were listening too. Then he flicked off the ledge and was gone. It was a while before the last stroke ceased vibrating. It stayed in the air, more felt than heard, for a long time. Like all the bells that ever rang, still ringing in the long, dying light rays, and Jesus and St. Francis talking about his sister. Because if it were just to hell, if that were all of it, finished. If things just finished themselves, nobody else there but her and me. If we could have just done something so dreadful that they would have fled hell except us. I have committed incest, I said. Father, it was I. It was not Dalton Ames.
Whether to credit or blame, I assign William Faulkner as having written my favorite paragraph in all of the English language, or certainly in all of American literature. And it is part of the reading that I shared from the second chapter of The Sound and the Fury, the Quentin chapter from June 2nd, 1910. And if I'm going to talk seriously about this concept of the power of a moment, it made sense to do so kind of from this perspective. I realize I've been doing a bit of readings lately, more than perhaps in the past, but this one for me is perhaps one of the most special because of the neo-surrealist nature of the story. You know, it's clearly just, you know, the, the beginnings or among the beginnings of streams of consciousness. Rather than being like a James Joyce story that ends with a moment of epiphany, to read The Sound and the Fury, it's almost helpful if you already know what the epiphany is, because this chapter does not end with a splash. It does not end with a drowning victim, even though that's exactly where the story is heading. Instead, as a reader, you're following along through the inner workings of the mind of Quentin Compson, and following his death 18 years before the first chapter, and really 18 years before the rest of the chapters in the book, and getting what I consider to be the foundational background material as a character, a young man, freshman in college, near the end of his freshman year, still upset by the promiscuous nature of his sister's fall from grace, if you will, America at that time having little patience for female sexuality in general, much less promiscuity, much less premarital sex leading to pregnancy, much less a, a marriage that would ultimately, through the course of the story, dissolve as a sham. These are the things that he was dealing with, fighting on one level for his family's honor in a moment that could be described as his awareness of the fallen South, you know, being from Mississippi, but also dealing with the intense relationship, a desire to protect, and that desire to protect manifests itself throughout the chapter, even though his sister only appears in memory. Surrogates for his sister appear in a couple of places during the storytelling. I could describe, and in my mind I sort of read this chapter as in some ways the thoughts of Quentin in the water. It, you know, there's no reason from a literary perspective that this can't be read as a dying set of thoughts, despite the length and breadth, but literally drowning in the streams of consciousness that Faulkner has written on his behalf. But it doesn't have to be read that way. But The Sound and the Fury being a challenging American novel forces you to deal with it on its own terms. And what you do with it from there, for want of a better word, is up to you. I've expressed on inappropriate conversations in the past my strong sort of sense of intersexual friendship, of how important it is that we break down some of these barriers that we've put up throughout history on the way men and women interact with each other by presuming that our only stage of relationship is animalistic. You hear this when we have discussions about rape culture, the idea that if a woman behaves in a certain way, then inevitably she's going to get attacked because that's well, her fault because that's how men behave. I think we need to, we need to hold men to a higher standard. And perhaps maybe a better way of wording it is that we need to stop insulting men by presuming that men have no better instincts than animalistic instincts and violent, territorial, sexually aggressive animalistic instincts. But we have been taught from a young age that men and women can't be friends, that there's this courtship ritual that has to happen. And we've seen in politics of the last 12 months or so that when some of the assumptions about gender identity and gender relationships get threatened, if men and men begin to marry, if women and women begin to marry, then that calls into question the entire notion of friendship. Again, I've mentioned it in earlier inappropriate conversations, but what is the opposite sex from the perspective of somebody who is, from a psychological perspective, 
in a same-sex gender relationship, you know, from uh, you know an emotional perspective, they're dating marital relationships or same gender. What's the opposite gender? So as a society, I think we need to ask these bigger, badder questions. And in some ways, Faulkner, you know, writing this novel decades and decades ago, has begun the conversation that we're still having to this day, or at least with me, he began a conversation that we're still having on this day. William Faulkner was born in September of 1897, meaning that he would have been 12 or 13 years old if he was in this story that he's writing. Now, he was from Mississippi, and he set this story in his own fictional, you know, sort of a composite culture of Mississippi. He's made up a town. He's made up a county. He's made up a couple of families, more than a couple of families. And he's pouring some of his experiences and a lot of his ideas into those relationships. But he would have been, you know, roughly the right age for looking at some of these issues and understanding the South at that particular time. This novel, Sound and the Fury, was published in 1929. Faulkner would win the Nobel Prize 20 years later in 1949. Of course, other writings are involved. And among my favorite short story authors is Faulkner. I don't personally regard him as highly in that particular venue as Poe or Joyce, to be honest with you. For me, my relationship with William Faulkner is primarily here. But on the other hand, if you jump over and look at IMDb and say, well, if the movie Barton Fink by the Coen brothers depicts a Faulkner character as a writer from the South working in Hollywood and kind of knowing the ins and outs of the system and almost being to some degree or another a little bit of a hack, well, what was his experience in Hollywood? Well, first, nowhere near as successful as his experience as a novelist or even as a short story writer. But he did generate a couple of very important screenplays and work that we would know. If you think of the Sam Spade-type character that Humphrey Bogart was creating, you start, of course, really, it starts and stops for me with the Maltese Falcon, which he did not write. But his screenplay for The Big Sleep carries that characterization forward. He also delivered another screenplay for a Humphrey Bogart project a year earlier, uh, To Have and Have Not. In some ways, my experience with director Howard Hawks has a lot to do with William Faulkner. Those are among the films from Hawks that I have seen and esteem the most. So when you look at Faulkner as a different drummer, the easiest thing for me to do would be to cut this short, as I have with some of the other authors who have been very prolific and are difficult to cover from a career-spanning perspective, and focus in on one narrow example. And I think that's ultimately what I'm going to have to do here, because I want to talk a little bit about that, not the moment of epiphany, but the power of an ordinary individual moment, a moment that otherwise might reveal nothing whatsoever, that even despite being mundane, carries a tremendous amount of meaning because of the inner dialogue, monologue, however you might word it, that's happening in the mind of a character or reader or an individual at that moment. Again, I've said before and I'll say it again, Faulkner has generated my favorite fictional paragraph in the history of American literature and maybe in the English language. He went out. The door closed. His feet went down the corridor. Then I could hear the watch again. I quit moving around and went to the window and drew the curtains aside and watched them running for chapel. The same ones fighting, the same heaving coat sleeves, the same books and flapping collars flushing past like debris on a flood. And spode, calling Shreve my husband. Ah, let him alone, Shreve said. If he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts, whose business? In the South, you are ashamed of being a virgin. Boys, men, 
They lie about it. Because it means less to women, Father said. He said it was men invented virginity, not women. Father said it's like death, only a state in which the others are left. And I said, but to believe it doesn't matter. And he said, that's what's so sad about anything, not only virginity. And I said, why couldn't it have been me and not her who was unvirgin? And he said, that's why that's sad too. Nothing is even worth the changing of it. And Shreve said, if he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts. And I said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? Did you? Last time on Inappropriate Conversations, I talked about the power of touch. And this week, I want to talk about the power of a moment. Moments in time that cause us to stop in our tracks and to leave the events that we are experiencing and head off in a direction of, of internal monologue, internal dialogue even, depending on how you look at it. I call this neo-surrealism, and it's related in many ways to the stream of consciousness that people like Faulkner and Joyce and others have given to us you know, as a literary gift over the years. But in this case, what I tend to do is to look at it from the perspective of movies like, say, Jacob's Ladder, where you're watching a film where a lot of very strange things are happening, surrealist things, frightening, horrific things, and find out through the course of the film, spoiler alert, that none of those things are actually quote-unquote real, that these are the thoughts of somebody who's dying in a battlefield hospital, where he, as a character, is asking the wish-fulfillment question of what might happen if I somehow get through all this, despite the fact that he doesn't. I could describe Jacob's Ladder as a neo-surrealist in battlefield surgery, wishing he survives, something along those lines. Well, there's a piece in part of the writings that I personally have done that I have willfully kept separated from any of these inappropriate conversations. That's almost true. There's a paragraph of my own, like this one from Faulkner, that I have shared in a past Different Drummer segment, but I haven't read any of these particular writings end to end and part of it is because well, yeah, I'm really not sure what my relationship is with these works. I consider it to be a completed set, but unlike things that I'm willing to excerpt from and pull, primarily because those things that I've excerpted over the years are, you know, by and large, they're essays, they're nonfiction, a little bit of poetry. These I consider to be a fictional work and a unified fictional work, a combination of things that I've described in the past as being both neo-surrealist short stories and prose poems. But next week, I'm going to turn that corner, and in the process of discussing some other issues, I'm going to deal with one of those poems in its entirety, and finally pull something from a work, uh, a collection of works that I've called Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism. It is, to me, a good example of the power of a moment, about you know, what goes on, or how do you handle a situation where this is just going to a class reunion and meeting people again for the first time if that kind of logic makes sense. It's also a set of writings with a concept like, when you knelt and crawled away, you reminded me of something I never knew before. Those kinds of ideas. I describe the manifestos of neo-surrealism this way from an acknowledgments perspective, with the first acknowledgement being perhaps the most obvious, Andre Breton, who, from a literary perspective, was a leading surrealist and you know, published a book called The Manifestos of Surrealism. To Andre Breton, Louis Benwell, Salvador Dali, and all who have continued their art. You inspired us to grow our own reality, 
and not buy what we are sold in society's cultural supermarket. And then I name a specific friend from my past. I won't name her here because I've never named her in an inappropriate conversation. I'm not about to change that. But I said, to all of you, you made my exploration of possible worlds more a matter of urgency than of leisure. And to my wife, you believed in me after I stopped making sense. I don't know whether this is going to be a regular, recurring thing. Probably not. I think that these are going to get sprinkled in where it makes sense along the way. And at some point, maybe I'll even go end-to-end with the longest of these works, Authorial Intent, a neo-surrealist revising a will from his deathbed. I believe online on Twitter I inappropriately described it as writing a eulogy from his deathbed. Revising a will makes more sense. Maybe I'll cover that end-to-end as well. But next week I will dip into the manifestos of neo-surrealism, because to me that really is the concept of this notion of being in that moment, and how do you deal with that moment, And what happens if we have people in our world who are out of touch with themselves enough that they don't understand the connections that they've made? I made a very odd connection this weekend, and I don't really know exactly what to do with it. It sort of amused me a little bit. It's Memorial Day. So some of you may know, I really struggle with Memorial Day because, well, from a national perspective, from a bank holiday perspective, it's a time of mourning. It's a time of reflection, a time of sadness. For me, it's a time of great joy. Yeah, it's, this is the anniversary of the first date with the woman who's now my wife. This is a big deal. This is a good thing. And, of course, it was a first date because it was a day off school. It was a holiday. Give your average 16 or 17-year-old a holiday, and they're not necessarily going to go to the cemetery, especially if they don't have a loved one nearby who's been buried because of you know, dying in military conflict or something like that. But at the same time, I do recognize the solemnness of the occasion. And what happens is the the American television stations, the cable movie stations, tend to fill this particular weekend with war films. Makes sense. It's a weekend set aside to remember those who died in war. So I ended up making the connection in my mind between Guadalcanal, famous battle in World War II, to Guadalcanal Diary, the movie of that name, to Guadalcanal Diary, the Athens-based alternative rock band from the 80s, to, well, beyond that, Treat or Write, a blues-based band from Boston, also in the 80s and early 90s, that would later morph into morphine, pun intended. And so thinking about Memorial Day, kind of find, trying to find my way between the joy of an anniversary, a very sacred anniversary to me, and the equally sacred task of remembering those who have who've given their lives for our country, has somehow led me to a memory of being on the street in Lawrence, Kansas, standing outside a bar, waiting to be let in, probably standing in the will call line, because my job in the record store had certainly earned me free tickets to this particular show. So I'm waiting with people who had either prepaid or who also had somehow picked up comp tickets along the way. The headlining act was Guadalcanal Diary, and it would be their last major U.S. tour in, the, in that particular continuum of the band, because Flip Flop was their last studio album. The first studio album from them that I'd heard through and through, and it had won me over. I was a fan of the band. And the warm-up band, I'd never heard of before. So I'm standing in line, and behind me, I can hear someone who I'm assuming was a college student. It's Lawrence, Kansas. So you probably have a University of Kansas student saying, I can't believe there are that many people who have come out tonight to watch Guadalcapuque. So, clearly not a fan. I really don't consider myself to be that confrontational of a person. And as I tell this exchange, I realize it can sound like I was being confrontational. But believe me when I say I was really just being friendly and curious. I was at the time not that far removed from a journalism career. 
In fact, I may have at that time still been freelancing on covering music concerts, although not this one. I turned to her and I said, Waddle Kapuke? <laughs> she says, yes, I hate them. I hate everything about them. I can't believe this many people are going to come and watch them you know, sing, watch them play. And I asked the obvious question. If you don't mind my asking, why are you here? She said, I'm here for Treater Wright. I said, I don't know anything about Treater Wright. So she told me about the warm-up band. I went in to see the show. And in many ways, she was absolutely right. Certainly as a live act, Treater Wright was more entertaining than Guadalcanal Diary. But then that doesn't mean that Guadalcanal Diary failed the, you know, failed the standard. You have better and good, as opposed to what you may find in a good show of good and better, or at least okay and better. I mean, we all know the peril of being the warm-up band. If you're not paired well with the band that you're warming up for, you can be brilliant and unappreciated at the same time. And even though these two groups probably, in the record store that I was learning to manage, weren't in the same place. We probably had one in alternative rock. One we probably didn't stock at all, but if we did, we might have had them in blues. We might have had it in pop and rock. I don't think we would have had them both in alternative. Somehow found the right balance. The crowd had a good time all the way through with both shows, and both groups managed to bring in the right combination of humor and intelligence to their work. But here I am, it's Memorial Day. Why am I remembering a conversation with somebody I don't even know? I didn't know at the time. Couldn't, re- couldn't describe her if you asked me to give a description of what she looked like. Don't have a vivid recollection of even of her voice. Probably not even getting the dialogue between the two of us that accurate. But I'm back there, standing, on a cooler-than-it-should-have-been night in August, September, whenever that show was performed, getting ready to go into a bar I'd never been to before to see a band that I'd only heard of in the last two or three months and another band I'd never heard of before that night. There's something about the power of the moment that that exchange will stick with me. Maybe not forever, don't know, but it's stuck with me now since, well, the distance between, call it 1989 and today. That's a significant number of years to remember what essentially was a toss-off conversation, a meaningless piece of dialogue with a random stranger in line. And yet that's what you're getting, really, all the way through The Sound and the Fury, and especially in the Quentin Compson June 2nd, 1902 chapter. I suspect I do this more often with music than with anything else. The soundtrack to my life is being pulled from my memory of the 100,000 songs that I have, probably more if you count the CDs that I've never bothered to rip into an MP3 file, and the 12,000 I carry around with me at all times because I insist on having an MP3 player with that kind of capacity to it. Because I never want to have that feeling of, oh, if only I'd synced this particular song to my player. My MP3 player gets a lot of action from a syncing perspective, in and out with podcasts, perhaps, sometimes with other pieces of spoken word that may show up as regular audio files. But the music, to me, doesn't move around that much. You've got to aggravate me as a musician for me to pull a song that has earned its way onto my player off. And the only things that really come and go from a music perspective are when a brand new album gets introduced. If I make the decision to put the entire CD on and then ferret out the tracks I'm not that interested in later, but even that's a rare exception. Anymore, I'll just use the drive time to listen to the CD and decide which things I want to put on the player then. One of my latest purchases, which I haven't heard all the way through yet, is MC 900 Foot Jesus. Not the one that came out right around the time that Earl Roberts was claiming that a you know, 900-foot Jesus Christ appeared in the Tulsa, Oklahoma skyline and was threatening to kill him if he didn't build a hospital. But a few albums later, 
after the creative energy had you know ferreted out from its original form and morphed into something different, I need to listen to that CD a few times and decide if, what songs, if any, are going to make its way onto my player. But it's hard for me to hear somebody mention Oral Roberts University as an institution of learning or what have you without me thinking soundtrack to my life. The music that needs to be playing while this conversation is going on is probably MC 900 foot Jesus and DJ zero because of the, well, the direct connection between the band being named sarcastically as a deserved dig against the so-called evangelist and his completely heretical claims made for no other purpose than to further his own pride and get a hospital built. So it's examples like that, some of which I've mentioned before, that I could go on again and again in terms of at some points being very careful to say, hey, I want to make, I want to make sure that if a moment in my life is really, really special, that I've got the, some control, at least as much control as possible over the music. When the decisions were being made about what to do for wedding receptions, my wife made an observation this weekend that we didn't really go to any college graduation parties that we knew that high school graduation, we definitely went to parties and our kids had high school graduation parties for them that we hosted. They went to tons of others, but now that we're starting to get to the point where we have college graduation activity happening, either between us or between our coworkers or our kids with friends of a slightly different age, it occurred to us that we never really had a big, we, we graduated, we've got our degree. Let's throw a shindig. We graduated that afternoon. We finished packing up what was in our apartment. We gave the keys back, got our security deposit back and left town. And only a few days later, making some very harried and hurried arrangements to get a wedding done. There might've been 10, 12, 13 days between the graduation commencement ceremony and the wedding day itself, all of it happening in the month of May. But there was a lot to be done during that time. I recall that for whatever reason, the church that we had selected had an unexpected issue where their organ was just unavailable to them. Uh, they were doing some remodeling. Something happened. We had to make some arrangements to get a temporary organ brought in so that the organist, an old family friend I've mentioned on previous inappropriate conversations, would even have something to play. His contribution, his part in our wedding was you know, at risk of being compromised simply because there wasn't going to be a musical instrument available. So the, the whirlwind of activity between graduation and the wedding day didn't leave any time for parties. However, we did essentially cover that by having two receptions. We had the one reception and a formal reception hall where you did all the bouquet toss, garter toss, cake eating sort of things. And then we had another one at her family home in town where it was essentially a keg party. In each case, though, I had... This, the decision about, well, what do we do with the music? Do we hire a band? Do we bring in a DJ? And to be honest with you, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was bring in a DJ because I didn't want my wedding and my memory of the wedding to be you know covered in the soundtrack of this guy's choices. And this guy's choices were going to be suspect and they were going to be suspect because, well, he's a party DJ, right? So I go from time to time to work parties, more often my wife's than mine, truth be known. And I usually just, I go in with a mental checklist and say, okay, before this night's over, we're going to hear play that funky music, white boy. We're going to hear love shack. You know, we're going to just have this list and just make, basically tick them off and say every year, year after year, no matter what happens, it's going to be the same songs. Now, occasionally the DJ has an opportunity to surprise me. Rarely I'd say impress me, 
but the one thing I know is that whatever else the DJ chooses to do, that's the playlist. That's what's going to happen. And I don't believe it's because anybody who's associated with our workplaces pulls the DJ aside and says, dude, you got to play these songs. That's just what the playlist is. Now, I had uh, a friend, a coworker, actually, when I was working in movie theaters, who a couple of times in my life, I've had people who didn't agree with my musical taste. Not just that they didn't like the same stuff I like, because I'm always going to like something other people hate. But he didn't buy in to the popular notion that I had a great range of musical taste. This happened in the record store business as well. You get hired in. You started, everyone assumes that, well, there's no way you could have a very good palate because when you're working in a record store and it's your job to listen to everything and it's your job to understand everything well enough to be able to answer questions and make recommendations and heck, you're going to be there eight or nine hours a day. You're going to be listening to a dozen CDs a day. You're going to be up on what's new and fair point. I wasn't that up on what was new, but I wasn't given credit for the broad range of what I listened to. And our friend Bill, he hadn't given me credit for the broad range of what I listened to all the way through our college years. And I really only see him in the summertime, a little bit at Christmas. We went to different schools, rival schools, in fact. But it was that wedding day, that first reception, where I had basically provided the music for the event. And even to the extent of trying to time it such that certain music would be playing at certain points in time, that roughly when you're dealing with the dinner part, it's going to be this. And then when you're getting to the cake and the dessert, the cutting of the cake and the first bite of cake, it's going to be this. At one point during that reception, he came up to me and, and basically told me he was sorry. He said, hey, the music here is incredible. I'm hearing from your family that it's yours. Is this all your music? And I said, yeah, it's all my music. And he goes, well done. I'd pick music that would be orally acceptable to the broad age range of everybody who had been invited. So anywhere from little kids all the way up to people close to 100 years old. that would be inoffensive, I guess, from that perspective. And yet at the same time, show this sort of range. So this, you know, particular, I don't have the tapes anymore, sadly, but the music included Satisfy My Soul by Bob Marley, Into the Mystic by Van Morrison, among other tracks. And I don't think that he thought that I had those tracks in my catalog. I think he probably thought that I was more just straight up new wave. I was the fall, I was the boom down rats or classic rock, but not classic in the sense of, of Van Morrison and certainly not reggae. The party after was a completely different game. I mean, same idea. I had more tapes, more music, but people were welcome to interrupt, throw in what they wanted. It was essentially a college party. But I was contributing to that one from the extent of having basically a classic rock side or set, a jazz side or set, a modern, back then we would have called it new wave sort of set. And that party went on. I mean, the, there was a couple of hours of designated formal party stuff with the photographer there doing his thing, getting all the sort of getting all the mandatory shots. And then that was done. We hopped into the limo, took the driving away, just married picture. But we headed over to her house, changed clothes and had essentially that graduation party. The reason I tell this story is both to confirm that I'm a little bit odd in how I manage things, but also to say it's important for me to control the soundtrack of my life. It's a big event at that time, the biggest event of my life, still one of the biggest events of my life. And the last thing I wanted was to be dealing with play that funky music white boy, just because that's the song that everybody plays at a party. Or that's the song that this DJ will always play at a party. Now I had to have more say than that. If it was going to be my choices, it was going to include things like Brian Eno whether anybody knew who Brian Eno was or not. The power of a moment. 
Think about it for just a moment. There has to be significant events in your life where when you were there, you can taste again the food you were eating. Or you have the feel of, on your skin of what the wind was like on that day or what the temperature was like. Or your ears can recall the music that was playing. Or the dialogue, the conversation is so clear that you can hear the voices in your head like they're right behind you in line again. These moments don't have to be big and huge and monumental like a wedding. They can be as simple as an innocuous conversation with somebody that you're randomly paired with on an airplane. Does it change things? Does it stick with you? Does it make you think of really the wrong thing during a holiday like Memorial Day for the rest of your life? Is it something about the first day of school that creates extra anxiety for you as a parent doing that whole first day of school thing again? Now, part of it is just having a good memory. I have memories of elementary school, certain things in kindergarten, less so in first grade, more in second grade. But obviously, junior high school, I've shared junior high school, senior high school, and college. A lot of the things that I talk about in inappropriate conversations have had the benefit of aging more than just a decade or two to sort of become seasoned and, and you know relatively appropriate to whatever the topic at hand may be. This one, not so much. The closest I would get is saying that if my esteem for the sound and the fury is so high, partly because of the relationship between the characters that the brother in the story is willing to tell a lie about having committed incest and being himself the reason that his sister is no longer a virgin. And perhaps even he never gets to this extreme, but perhaps the reason that his sister is pregnant because he views that relationship as being threatened by this change, this change in status, this change, not just in family esteem and family status, but in the relationship between the two, was she going to be sent away or quite literally married off early and what was that going to do to the, you know, whatever better word, friendship the two of them had? That is connects with me in a very real way. I've remembered having to explain to myself over the years, why is this relationship different than the others? Why is it okay for me to have a female friendship in my sophomore year in high school, but suddenly not okay in my senior year of high school? Why is it not even a relevant concern for me in my freshman year in college, where I'm unwilling to define any female relationship as a friendship? where I'm willing to let every one of those relationships be defined in some way as either a friend of a friend or a sister of a roommate or something, you know, if it's dating at all, extremely casual, extremely noncommittal, unwilling to emotionally invest in anybody because of the experiences the year before my senior year in high school and the, the gap between my senior year in high school and my senior year in college being so extreme that I was finally back to being able to understand and define these relationships in a way that it was possible to have that kind of intense commitment to someone without it threatening to devastate every other relationship I had. I mean, I had doubters. I had doubters within my own family. And my female friends have had doubters, mainly within their own families. But I was somehow able to manage it. One of the ways that I connected the dots here, one of the ways that I'm able to draw the line and to understand it is the irony of having read The Sound and the Fury in the month of June at the end of my freshman year, which was, you know, again, exactly when the story of Quentin Compson in that second chapter is being told, June 2nd, 1910, end of his freshman year, realizing he's actually going to miss the boat race. He will be dead before the boat race. 
where all of his friends and family have concurred that if you go to Harvard and you miss the boat race, they might as well give you a refund. You might as well not have even gone. And his reason for being willing to sacrifice everything, to throw everything away, burn his brother's pasture that was sold to raise the capital to send him to school can be summed up as simply as, did you ever have a sister? In my case, it might have just been as simple as, did you ever have a friend? Or do you even understand what the word friend means? For me, that's the power of a moment. That's me sitting in the newsroom my senior year in college and having someone tell me, hey, that person in that dream you're describing, that dream you don't understand, that dream that doesn't make sense, I'm pretty sure that's me. Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word. Have you got Stitcher? Inappropriate Conversations is on it, so you should get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. And the folks at Stitcher have addressed what I consider to be one of their biggest gaps. I don't know enough firsthand. I haven't been on a plane here in the last couple of weeks. But it sounds as if Stitcher has made it possible for you to save files remotely that you can listen to from a safe mode perspective while on a plane. One of the things that Stitcher has not historically been able to do for me is give me the ability to tap into all of this content when I'm on an airplane or in some other form of safe mode. But now the shows that I listen to exclusively on Stitcher can be saved in that manner and played back on my iPhone while we're in the air. So that's a big step forward for Stitcher. Other ways you can interact with inappropriate conversations in addition to Stitcher are on our Facebook page at inappropriate conversations. It's listed as a cause. I'm also on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. As I prepare to leave this particular topic today, I want to hit one of the poems from the manifestos of neo-surrealism. It's called A Belated Happy Birthday. And in this particular one, I was connecting the thoughts in my head about the fact that sometimes archetypes continue to appear. I think probably all of us have had this moment where you meet somebody and they remind you of other people. And maybe there's a string of friends that you've met along the way because well, if they are similar to other friends you've had in the past, the personality types are going to match. They're going to mesh. But perhaps it is more divine than that. More, it's Maybe it's more a matter of God putting people in your path that he knows you need to hear from because in the past you've heard from somebody else and this person is like Sean or this individual is like Marcy. So they keep popping back up again. Well, I had one of those moments where I was working in the mall met somebody who was, again, like Mercy in lots of ways. And from that, I thought to myself, wow, you know what? In the back of my head, I sort of have memories of certain birthdays. And this isn't Facebook reminding me. This was way before Facebook. And even today, I, I have these dates in my head, certain dates in May, certain dates in October, certain dates in April. But I didn't have any recollection of that particular date for Marcy. And this friend of mine just reminded me of that. And as I left the conversation we were having, as I left this 
belated birthday gift that was provided or a card that was provided from the staff of the store to her, I came back with this poem, a belated happy birthday. I've been waiting what seems a lifetime, watching to see if you could trust me. There's something rather odd, touching in your smile. I'd call it a knowing grin, if only I knew. I've looked in five languages, not including my own, for words. Rather, a phrase, to say what I'm almost feeling. It's just one of those things. If you don't know already, you never will, even with my help. On the other foot, if you know from before, you won't need me to tell you, and you wouldn't want me to try. Obviously, the only reason I sleep well at night is because I know that you know already what I don't know how to say. I've attempted to explain to you many times before, moments when you were younger, living in other places, in other homes. I have been a prodigal member of all your families. Both of us know we've been awaiting my return. Before you were born, I was there. Even though you are sometimes younger than I am, you saw my birth as well. I tell you this now because the knowledge comes through you. When you knelt and crawled away, you reminded me of something I never knew before. Thanks for listening. is up against Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, Dan? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Geekfights.net.